You are listening to National Security Law Today. We're back with an all-new episode of National Security Law Today, your source for national security law during quarantine, days when we feel like we're apocalypse adjacent, and sunny good times, too. I'm Elisa, and we're recording on November 18th of 2020, and President Trump has not yet conceded the election, and transition teams have not, so far as we know, been given entree to meet with current executive branch officials. So we bet. What on earth should we discuss as national security lawyers on a fine day like this? So, Elisa, we have a veritable smorgasbord of topics that we can choose from in the national security realm, given the state of affairs in our fair country. Uh, But I'd love to take a trip down transition memory lane and discuss the national security legal and operational challenges that arise when transitions are delayed or bumpy. As we discussed in our last cast, this happens from time to time. Uh, and we uh, you know, have dealt with uh, challenges with transitions in different ways. So let's harken back to our Bush v. Gore election cast. And just the months prior to that, before Al Qaeda attacked our country on September 11th, 2001. I mean that by the way. And I'm Nicole. Before we get any further into the substance of the podcast, a quick disclaimer because lawyers need and live by disclaimers. The lawyers on NSLT are always here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. All right, let's talk about the 2000 election. Remember that one? Um, You might have heard our podcast with Ned Foley on elections. It was contested. That election was contested. And um, What happened was it dragged on through December when the Supreme Court heard the Bush v. Gore case. And much like now, there really was not a transition to speak of. Uh, But in September of 2000, according to the findings of the original 9-11 Review Commission, the then acting deputy director of the CIA, John McLaughlin, briefed then Governor George Bush, W. Bush, on terrorism in several matters. And apparently, as it's characterized in the 9-11 report, it was sort of a broad thing, like Al-Qaeda, bad, right? Um, And Richard Clark also briefed Condoleezza Rice on Al-Qaeda, but they were all learning new information because they hadn't been in government for eight years. So if you haven't seen this, it's really worth a look. Don't, you know, listen to these reduced um, characterizations on the radio, but if you have the 9-11 Commission Review Board, it's, a, it's also available and we'll hyperlink to it. You can look at Section 6.4 um, because it's pretty shocking. And what else is that? So you'll also, uh, you also might recall that 25 days before the 2000 election, the USS Cole was attacked in the port of Aden. And it was not settled uh, by the time the uh, Bush transition occurred that bin Laden himself was responsible for that attack. And, you know, this was one of a string of attacks, a string of terrorist attacks that culminated in uh, the September 2001 terror attack on the World Trade Center, Pentagon, uh, and uh, the Capitol. In any event, the 9-11 Commission cited directly uh, the transition, the fact that we didn't have a robust and orderly transition uh, contributed to not being able to detect and, and stop the attacks on September 11th. 
So with that uh, kind of lay down, how are we adjusting to um, the current transition? Okay, well, let's let's just go back because as long as we're recounting the history, I think it's important to remember a couple of other things. Um, the 1993 Al-Qaeda bombing of the World Trade Center, you know, which sort of portended, foreshadowed what would ultimately happen. You know, they chose a time to do that when Clinton had literally only been in office a month. And I'm, I'm sure that that uh, was among the considerations that they had. Uh, the other thing is, it's, it's important to remember that um, when Libyan terrorists brought down, you know, Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, that that happened during the transition between Reagan and Bush. So this isn't, you know, this isn't something that hasn't been a problem all along. Any people recognize that we're vulnerable when the government is changing and, um, you know, they try to take advantage. Uh, so I think we should have some concerns about that here as well. Um, but let's, uh, let's talk about principles, first principles, because one might wonder as a national security lawyer, um, what law governs transition? I mean, other than common sense um, and a love of country, you know, what would be the law? And there's something called the Presidential Transitions Act, which apparently was, has been around since 1963. It's been amended over and over again. But the point of it is, um, that it established formal processes and mechanisms to facilitate transitions. Um, but importantly, it also authorizes the administration, administrator rather of the General Services Administration um, to give facilities and services to eligible presidential candidates and the president-elect. Um, and the president uh, presidential transition is supposed to sort of facilitate that in the interest of our common good. So. Um, that a lot of that was recited in really a terrific report by the Congressional Research Service, uh, which we'll hyperlink here because I really think people should take a look at it because it was prepared in 2017 before uh, these issues were apparent. Yeah, so let's like walk through a brief timeline of how uh, transitions are supposed to look um, without uh, <laughs> any of the external issues uh, that we are going through today in the news. So three months before the election, a federal transition coordinator reports to the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs and the House Committee on Oversight and Reform about the transition preparations. Then by September 1st in the election year, the GSA enters into a memorandum of understanding with eligible candidates about support services. By October 1st, the GSA negotiates memoranda of understanding with transition teams. What date is it again? You know, it feels like November 18th. I feel like I said that at the beginning of the cast. So we're more than a month late on the MOUs and more than two months after the GSA sort of initial meeting. That is obviously uh, raises the potential issues vis-a-vis -vis national security. All right. Look, we, you know, talk about national security threats. We've now exceeded a quarter of a million deaths because of COVID. Um, I can't imagine a situation in which we would need a smooth transition um, more than this one. Um, if that I noticed you, let's talk a little bit about these vaccines that are kicking around. I mean, these things have to get out. There has to be a plan. It's it's really um, it's really concerning, right? We 
Uh, today, New York City schools uh, announced that they are closing down again. There are some states that are implementing, um, you know, they're, they're shutting down uh, uh, statewide. Again, they're implementing uh, mandatory mask orders. They're limiting um, a capacity of bars and restaurants. Uh, and, you know, even though the vaccine, it, the two vaccines um, that Pfizer and uh, Moderna have uh, trialed are definitely a bright spot in this, this kind of really awful um, uh, news, you know, item that we've hit. Um, there are at least a couple of months away from being approved and or deployed um, out to the general public. Uh, the Trump administration has announced that there is going to be a tiered uh, distribution, um, a four-tiered distribution for these vaccines. But we, uh, you know, the states are saying that because of the way the va vaccines need to be stored in cold storage, one needs um, to be stored in dry ice, the other needs to be refrigerated, that it really is going to complement complicate the dissemination um, and distribution of um, these vaccinations. Um, we've heard uh, a couple of times uh, administration officials saying, you know, vaccines don't uh, stop the virus, vaccinations do. We actually need to get this into people's arms in order to start building the um, herd immunity that we're going to need in order to defeat the virus and go back to normal. So the fact that the Trump administration is not sharing uh, information with the Biden transition team's coronavirus task force. And, you know, the states are also alerting um, everyone to the fact that they don't have adequate logistics in order to distribute these uh, vaccines. It's quite alarming. I will tell you, I heard today <laughs> that there was some belief that Amazon could distribute these vaccines. I'm not saying we've hit bottom and that's the nadir, but they, you know, it was an interesting discussion because I thought, what would prime members, you know, get priority? Um, I don't know, but let's let's. I, I think another. it's fascinating. Um, I I think no, but I think that's kind of a fascinating idea, right? Like Amazon has has really surpassed logistics. They, they really are the, <laughs> the, the very top when it comes to same day deliveries, um, being able to deliver all, all order of things. Um, we are not afraid to enter into the realm of public private partnerships and a variety of, of projects that we have that have been traditionally been in the realm of government. Um, you know, take everything from toll bridges to, you know, SpaceX, right? Let's not right, forget that. Right. SpaceX docked SpaceX. With, the, with the International Space Station. Um, a private company was able to dock with a, you know, what was previously thought um, to be only in the realm of governments. So I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, we've seen stranger things these times. You know, if, if Bezos could pull that off, I think, you know, I think people would begin to forgive the uh, photo incident. But let's move on. Yvette, who was fired this week? Well, this week it was Christopher Krebs, who was fired by tweet by the president. Krebs was the expert who headed the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. He asserted that this was the most secure election in U.S. history, but that uh, fact is being disputed by the president actively. And uh, for that, uh, Mr. Krebs was let go. Well. What did he say, Nicole? Do you have access to that so we can get a direct quote here from Christopher Krebs? 
Yes. So Christopher Krebs tweeted a joint statement from the Election Infrastructure Government Coordinating Council and Sector Coordinating Executive Committees that said, quote, there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. He tweeted that out with the pithy TLDR, America, we have confidence in the security of your vote. You should too. Wow. Okay. Um, apparently them were fighting words, right? Uh, so in the words of Freddie Mercury, uh, another one bites the dust. That's a shame. He seemed like an awfully nice guy. Um, and I did note that an enormous number of people in Congress, uh, you know, spoke uh, positively about him today and the importance of the work and the good job that he had done. So in any event, um, let's move on just a little bit, because there is one thing about this entire uh, discussion that I, I think is, is lost by um, the media right now. And that is, I don't think people really understand what what CISA did. And um, it holds some unique data. It has some of the most rigid privacy protection rules in the entire government. Think about that. That's a bold statement. Um, and before you out there in the world decide to draw a conclusion about who Krebs was or what exactly that agency did, um, you really should go back now and listen to at least a portion of our podcast with Dan Sutherland, who was you know, counsel for the CISA, um, who explained the legal authorities of that agency, the hard work that they did, including, um, if you remember, he talked about censors in every state, penetration testing of voting systems by um, you know, DHS's internal hacking group, whom he had described as the happiest people <laughs> in the world. Um, and he also talked about you know, the details of things that they went to protect this election, including something he styled tabletops in a box for those of you who are breach response lawyers and and privacy folks. So um, we'll, put, we'll put some of that at the end of this podcast so that you can enjoy it. Uh, but I know that uh, I know what day it is. I know what has happened this week, but there have been some really exciting uh, advancements this week for women. And I think we should go ahead and talk about them, whether or not they're all related to national security. Yvette. Indeed. Indeed. It's been really thrilling. Um, Long-term listeners will recall that we did a series on 19 women uh, in national security to, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of women um, gaining the right to vote. Um, so we are going to just continue to highlight the accomplishments of women whenever they arise at the end of our podcast. And so we will jump into that now. We would be remiss if we did not uh, note that Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is going to be the first woman uh, vice president in the history of these United States, as well as the first Black woman and uh, Southeast Asian woman. It's extremely uh, exciting for us because she is going to be uh, at the tip of the spear in the national security realm as vice president. We also want to congratulate Sydney Barber, who is going to be the first Black female brigade commander at the U.S. Naval Academy. It's thrilling. Um, we also need to congratulate a friend of the podcast, um, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, for being voted into the American Academy of Diplomacy. Very exciting. And Congratulations, Bonnie, wherever you are. Super exciting. And this is far afield, um, pardon the pun from national security, but 
We'd love to congratulate Kim Ng for being the first female manager or general manager of a major league baseball team. That is a big deal. That's huge. I used to really love the Dodgers. I would have liked that job. I am aware that the baseball is the little white one with the red stripes, (laughs) but I know (laughs) that it's a big deal. (laughs) So congratulations, ladies. And we look forward to celebrating the achievements of even more uh, women in the future. So we've been having quite an interesting uh, week in the news. There were a couple of topics we weren't able to do deep dives into, but we will um, cover in a whole podcast. For example, um, the sometimes serious adver- adverse effects of pardons and clemency grants in the last hours, which have sullied perhaps the office of the presidency. And we will uh, invite a pardon expert on a future cast. In addition, uh, the president has um, ordered some uh, rapid with, uh, withdrawals of troops um, overseas, and we are going to delve deeply into that uh, issue with a military expert and a cast to come. All right. Awesome. Yvette, Nicole, it is always great to have you on the NSLT team, um, and I'm glad we've been together. And thank you, everybody, for listening tonight. We'll bring you more national security law news next week um, in this, as this never-ending election season unfolds. Well, the president hasn't ended it yet. (laughs) (laughs) And remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments, feedback, find us on Twitter at ABANATSEC, or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will continue to keep you informed about fast-moving legal developments. And don't forget, the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity, not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, everyone, and be safe. We're all in this together, even though we're apart and even though we have different views. We'll definitely try to bring our uh, listeners together through education, knowledge, and growth. And importantly, we're going to leave you with the words tonight of Dan Sutherland, the counsel for the CISA, who shared with us how hard CISA staff and Chris Krebs had worked to protect election infrastructure, what data it protects, their privacy rules, and how they prepped for the 2020 elections. Be well. And just a note for our listeners, we are actually going to take next week off for the Thanksgiving holiday. Join us again in two weeks for new episodes. Thank you. Okay, well, let, let me jump back. You're, you're making me go too fast. I, I, I want to jump back and talk to you about some of the um, uh, security offerings that we have provided to uh, the elections officials. And, and I think that'll be a really good um, backdrop. Um, we do um, have done extensive trainings um, over 3,000 election officials have completed our on- online training courses. That's just ours. There's private sector organizations doing training. There's others, but just ours, over 3,000 election officials. We've done uh, had a huge initiative on ransomware. Uh, we've done a voter registration database ransomware initiative that we've really pushed out and spent a lot of time on. We've helped um, the state and local uh, election officials develop um, cyber incident detection and notification planning guidance. So if you have a, uh, uh, an, an incident, you now have a game plan. Um, we've conducted hundreds of assessments. Um, we do vulnerability scanning, red team assessments, pen testing. We've got um, hundreds of them who are weekly receiving reporting from us on ways to improve their um, security. We've done a lot of exercises. We have a national exercise called Tabletop the Vote. We just had it um, this summer and we had um, 
people from over 37 states participate in this three-day seminar. Plus, we have um, created something called um, a Tabletop in a Box, which basically allows them to take the exercise and do it on their on their own uh, local le uh, levels. We've also done some really interesting things like um, product valuation testing. We've engaged directly with vendors of elections machinery, giving them critical product evaluations and election-related software and devices. Um, we're doing endpoint security. We're putting uh, sensors um, in different parts of, of the state. So actually, we now have sensors in just like we have the uh, sensors around the .gov environment. We have them in states, all 50 states. We have sensors so we can really um, track NetFlow. And that also allows the EISAC, if we can make recommendations to them on signatures that they could deploy, they have the ability to do that type of thing. So actually, I guess um, just, you know, the, the bottom line, I, I did want to say to help like put this into context, because we have the sensor coverage of the election community, it gives us the best, it gives us, the federal government, the best visibility over any single sector throughout critical infrastructure community. We don't have that with other critical infrastructure communities that we do have here. So anyway, that's a broad sense of what of what the security offerings that we have provided and that the states and locals are, are taking advantage of. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.